What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are joined this morning by Aisha Shahida Simmons. Aisha Shahida Simmons is a black feminist, lesbian survivor, healer, Buddhist practitioner, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation teacher, and award-winning filmmaker and author. Her groundbreaking 2006 released film, No, the Rape Documentary, and her 2020 Lambda Literary Award-winning anthology, which we are talking about today, Love with Accountability, Digging Up the Roots of Child Sexual Abuse, Break Silences, Offer Healing Paths for Trauma, and Provide Distinct Visions for Compassionately Disrupting the Inhumane Epidemics of Childhood and Adult Sexual Violence. Since 1993, Aisha has screened her work, guest lectured, taught university-level courses, and facilitated workshops across the North American continent and in several countries in Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. Hello, Aisha. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Kat. I'm really happy to be here. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Aisha. Um, I found you actually because I interviewed your parents uh, about a, a book that uh, details their lives as international activists um, and immediately wanted to talk to you. So I want to start with a little bit about you, how and where you grew up, what family life was like in a household with two revolutionaries for parents. Yeah. So I, um, so I, I think it's really important to, to share that um, my parents are divorced um, and they've been divorced or separated at least since I was four and I'm now 54. <laughs> so it's been most of my life um, with that shared. Uh, I, I grew up in, you know, two radical revolutionary homes. Um, and um, as a child, I didn't like it. So um, I wanted I don't know what normal is, but as a kid, I wanted what I thought was a normal life where parents were home. And, you know, yeah, that was something that was really important. Not in, not always going to meetings and all that. I didn't like that. And so it was actually my paternal grandparents that per, their home provided that sense of quote, in quote, normalcy. My grandmother, because of uh, a, a long battle with cancer, was a housewife, became a housewife. Um, and my paternal step-grandfather, the only paternal grandfather I knew, um, he worked outside of the home for the Philadelphia Gas Works. Um, so Nana was was like was a, was very much a maternal figure in my life and was was home and was there. So that's, that for me was what really symbolized home for me. Um, and not to say that my parents' home weren't my home. They were, but it was just always an active hustle and bustle of folks staying, you know, radical folks coming and staying at the house for meetings and going to conferences and conventions and, you know, a lot of that activity, um, which, I didn't really like, which is fascinating now because I have really spent most of my life being an activist. My listeners know that I actually love to talk about Black grandmothers. Could you say a little bit more about your Nana? Yes, yes. Rebecca White Simmons Chapman. Um, 
you know, she uh, had a fourth grade education and a PhD in life experience. And she was a, a woman who left home as a child and home was Rock Hill, South Carolina, around the ages of nine, and my, was part of that great migration. She was born in 1921 to Philadelphia, where she worked as a domestic for many, many years, and then began working in clothing factories and was very involved and engaged as a, a member of her union. So she was a, a, a union woman. She was also someone who was believed fervently in reproductive justice um, before the term is, you know, was even coined, I would say. Um, she was a feminist, though that was not a word that she used, but in terms of how she lived her life, she was definitely um, a feminist. And always one of her favorite quotes was, there's no such thing as can't pie. So we were very, very close. She was my confidant in so many ways and on so many levels. Um, there was definitely, um, I never talked to her about certain one thing, but for the most part, she was definitely one of my closest, closest comrades out, not comrades, but just maternal figure. Um, just really, really special woman for me and um, who left an indelible imprint on my life. Aisha, I want to move into now your personal story of sexual assault. You were sexually abused by her husband, your step-grandfather. And I'm wondering if we can start there. Uh, what happened to you and, yes. and how it came yes. to light? Yeah. Um, well, and that was the one thing, um, my abuse that I experienced at the hands of her husband, my pop-pop, my uh, step-grandfather, um, was the one secret that I did not tell her. Um, other than that, I can't think of, there wasn't anything that I didn't tell her. Um, and so I spent a lot of time at my parents' home in the ages of like 10, 11, my grandfather started um, molesting me and at their, at my, at their home, Nana and Pop-Pop's home. And I knew something was not right. And Interestingly enough, I knew or didn't think I could go to Nana, but I went, my mom was the first person I told. And at that time, she didn't believe me. Um, she asked me if I was dreaming, if I was sure I wasn't dreaming. And you can have dreams that are so real that you think that they're real. I mean, it was very much, you know, um, a serious interrogation for a child who's saying these things are happening to me. So. For me, nothing was done um, in terms of how I experienced my life. You know, there is definitely another side to the story of conversations between my mother and my father, who's my father's family, but nothing was done. I mean, initially, at some point, I was told that I would never be left alone at home with Pop Pop, um, but that wasn't the case. My parents traveled all of the time. It wasn't. When I say it wasn't possible, of course, anything is possible. I'm not excusing it, but at the way in which it was presented to me was that it wasn't possible. Um, and so it was really, it was a complex situation. So a house that was really my sanctuary, my haven away from, as I shared earlier about the hustle and bustle of two radical revolutionary households, Nana and Pop Pop's house provided that that sanctuary that I was longing for. So then that was completely disrupted when Pop-Pop took the night away from me. So I began to learn how to, uh, what I did called um, wear the mask of, you know, trying to figure out how not to 
to kind of be caught in the crossfires of, of pop pop. And it didn't happen all of the time, but I never knew when it was going to happen. Um, and yet being there, I remember that's when I started becoming afraid of the dark. Um, just all of the things that had really disrupted um, my life. And while it did stop, I would say about two years after it began, I didn't receive notification. It wasn't like it will stop. I only know that it stopped two years after when I look back in hindsight. So there was a certain reign of terror that I lived with um, throughout my teen years. I mean, from that time of at tween, you know, from 10 to 12, throughout my teen years of like, is he gonna come in the room? Is he gonna come in the room? That kind of fear. But he after a certain point, it, it stopped. And I don't know why it stopped. Um, I've had conversations with my parents. There's nothing that can happen. I mean, that can explain why it stopped other than the fact that it stopped. I have two follow-up questions to that. And in, in the first chapter, or it's not the first chapter, but the, the chapter that you you write in the book, um, you, you talk, uh, you, you lift up a complication that I think we don't talk about enough, uh, especially when it comes to familiar, familiar or childhood sexual abuse. And that's the fact that you loved your papa. Yeah. Um, can you talk about the complication of of loving your abuser and how that impacts family dynamics and how it makes it sometimes even harder to stand in your truth, specifically for children. Yeah, it was a complex experience because I did love him and um, and I was also terrified of him after, you know, um, so it's it's so surreal. I mean, he he became he also became the family hero because Nana developed Alzheimer's, um, I would say in 1990, so when I was 21. And that was at a time when he was retiring. He was also a union man and worked for the, the Philadelphia Gas Works and in, in, um, really, in, in another context if we weren't dealing with you know, racism and sexism um, in, in terms of their lives and, and, and classism. You know, my grandfather would have been an engineer. My grandmother probably would have been a medical doctor. She was definitely into healthcare. So in health and knew how to bring a fever down in a twinkling of an eye. But with Pop Pop, um, at the point that they were retiring, there was kind of talk about would they go south um, and, and leave Philadelphia and all of that. And my grandmother declined, her mental health declined. And so he took care of her for 10 years. Um, she never, ever set foot in a nursing home facility. He took care of her. And I shared that because I think this is these are the contradictions and the complications that we hold. Um, that the same man who terrorized me for two years is the same man who was my grandmother's savior and really by extension the family savior because, you know, if it weren't for him, I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that Nana would have been in a nursing home. Um, and so it's it's it is this complication complicated reality and when at her funeral I de delivered the eulogy and shared that um, and really gave praise to him in terms of what he did for his wife. I didn't obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I didn't talk about my abuse, um, but I really felt a need to lift up what he did. And it, several years later, um, nine years later in 2010, when he was in his own health crisis, I played a, a pivotal role in saving his life. And I believe I would do it again. 
So, and, and, but then it was that act that I was just like, I have to step back from all of this. So it is very complex. And I do wonder though, Kat, like what would have happened if my parents had demanded accountability? Like, did I, I mean, I did love him, but I also was encouraged to love him. I was encouraged not to hold him accountable, right? So I was taught to care for him as well. And I don't, so these are things that I'm grappling with now, um, thinking about um, as I work on my, my next um, book project, you know, what, is, what does it mean to hold these complexities and contradictions? And the complexity of your parents not believing you, can you talk about the impact on you and the impact on your relationship with them? Yeah, um, you know, it's very interesting. We, uh, because my parents are incredible human rights activists who have put their lives on the line for freedom and justice, not only in this country, but in various countries in the world. I mean, in fact, while the, when the molestation first started, my mom was on a six week uh, a dele travel delegation for the American Friends Service Committee where she worked um, as part of the first NGO delegation into Vietnam um, after the end of America's war um, against the country. And so, and then she actually snuck in, the delegation snuck into Cambodia while, I mean, they were, you know, trying to, uh, while the fighting was still occurring and Pol Pot regime was still there. So, so while she's doing this incredible, incredible work, right? Her daughter's being abused and my father's daughter is being abused. And so I, and so I, you know, there's, there's now 2023 or, you know, contemporary time. And then there's then, I don't think I had language for what did it mean for them not to believe me, but I had somatic responses, right? It's when I started developing migraines. Um, I really believed that at the time my body could not no longer could not scream. So I mean, my I could no longer scream, and so my body started screaming. Um, I think the fact of being raised not only by them but by Nana as well as Pop Pop about you know one of the famous lines that Nana would say is no such thing as can't pie that there's something really powerful for me when I think about little Aisha that she advocated for herself she went to the people in charge and was like there's an inju a grave injustice happening that wasn't the language and then they didn't do anything um so I think I learned how to compartmentalize I not think I know I learned how to compartmentalize all of this all of these contradictions and complexities but they took their toll on me through you know my really un food addiction um i you know food really has been a comfort a savior as well as you know the migraines now you know it so much distress in my gut as a result of being really addicted to motrin for years as a kid because that's what doctors were just giving nobody was of course at that point in the so we're talking about 79 to 81 we're making any connections between trauma and as an abolitionist i'd be horrified to know, think imagine what would have happened if they knew if they being the establishment knew that i was being abused and no one was doing anything about it um in terms of like because then that response is usually you know um, removing children from the home and placing them in some form of care so all of that is complex and i think what makes it even for me the profundity of the complexity 
is that my parents were and still are incredible human rights workers. And I think that this is, these are the conversations that we have to have when talking about childhood sexual abuse. That's why I lifted up what my grandfather did with my grandmother in terms of taking care of her, because we want to just make people either all bad or all good. We don't know how to hold these complexities, these shades of grays, these folks who commit monstrous acts, but aren't necessarily monsters. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Aisha Shahida Simmons, who is the editor of a book called Love with Accountability, Digging Up the Roots of Childhood Sexual Abuse. Aisha, how widespread is the crisis of childhood sexual assault in the country around the globe? Yeah, well, I know in the U.S. there are approximately 40 million survivors, and I believe, you know, there are many more, and I think that that number is based on those who have come forward, right? Um, and I th- and so, and, and I, we know that it is just, this. it's pervasive globally. Um, one of the things that really emerged during the COVID pandemic when we were all sheltering in place was, you know, all these conversations about sheltering in place, and one of the things that I've I said, you know, in 2020 was, you know, children are always sheltering in place, pandemic or no pandemic. I mean, there is a pandemic of childhood sexual abuse, but we're always sheltering in place, right? Like, where do we go? We don't have anywhere to go. Kids don't have anywhere to go when they're being um, abused. And and this is in a, an epidemic that people don't want to talk about. Often when we're talking about sexual violence committed against children, the default is trafficking. And I think that it is very important to talk about trafficking. In fact, at least one, if not two of the contributors were trafficked in my, um, in the anthology. Um, But I think that trafficking is not, I don't wanna act like it's any of these conversations are easy. It's easier because it's it's about the outsider, some outsider coming and taking our kids and, you know, sexually abusing them. What do we do when, the the harm doer is in our is living in our family i mean my grandfather brought me home with my mom from the hospital this you know i when i was just a few days old i mean this is someone who has been was an integral part of my life so this isn't some stranger um and so how do we hold all of that and how do we hold all of that where the to ensure the child's safety? How do we hold all of that where hopefully we can figure out how to hold um, people accountable without relying on cages as in prisons as a response, without relying on sending kids into foster care where they are have a high rate of being abused uh, and then also being separated from family. So um, these are really complicated uh, realities that require time for us to think about how to respond Um, because it's happening, it's been happening, and in order for us to disrupt and end it, we have to really think about all of these layers because there are multiple layers. And it's not just the person who's committed the act. 
it is the bystanders as well. I always say, you know, like this notion of like, oh, if we can just get rid of the person who's caused the harm, but often the person is able to continue to cause the harm because people allow it to happen. We, I'm using my own family as an example, and then we can just see it. And, and I won't get into names because that can just take us off on tangents, but in very high profile cases where people are like celebrating that, ex high celebrity is has been convicted or whatever of uh, harm a sexual assault and i'm not you know and and yet we don't think about how have they been allowed to do that for decades so how do we hold all of the people accountable for that harm and so if we're going to really end this epidemic we can't just focus on the people who actually commit the acts we have to focus on all those who allow it to happen because either they're in despair they don't know what to do they're burying their head in the sand they hope it goes away for all of the reasons but that's the only way that we're going to be able to make any headway on this epidemic I want to tug on, on the thread a little bit more of the systems that have traditionally been the response to sexual abuse and, and the ways in which they have failed survivors. Can you talk about um, how and why police right, have been presented as the only option to address childhood sexual assault and, and, and how prisons, as you, as you talk about, actually continue the legacy of childhood sexual assault behind their walls? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there is this notion that um, police are not human beings um, who also commit a lot of violence, interpersonal violence, familial violence, domestic violence, that there's this notion like, oh, the police are gonna come in and save the day. And I, one of the things when I, and I talk a lot around sexual violence that I always say, who do you call if your harm doer is a member of the police or military personnel? I mean, we know in various, you know, in the military, in all forms of, you know, um, so-called uh, industries that are called to quote unquote protect and serve, don't do that. And then what do you do? I mean, I'm a black woman um, in the black community, a daughter of radical revolutionaries, who spent my father was 30 months in prison for refusing to participate in the wholesale murder of Vietnamese people um, known as the war in Vietnam. My mother was beaten and jailed. So who, who, who are we calling? And we know about all the murders. We know about many of the murders and then there's so many that we don't know. So I'm not, I, I just really invite us to kind of push back against this notion that police are going to make us safe. Um, if that were the case, would we have the epidemics that we have? We, it, it is the high rate in terms of pr uh, sexual assault in prisons. That the, the statistics show that 40% of correctional officers are raping and abusing inmates and inmates are, are kids, children all the way up to adults. And so what what is what are what are these so-called safe spaces? And in the cases of children who commit harm, sexual harm, um, I always say like something has ha something happened. Like chances are they are replicating what has been done to them or replicating what they've witnessed. 
Um, I don't believe that any of us arrive on the planet when we are infants. I don't believe, including my grandfather, that they they came here as abusers. So what has happened in our society? Um, what's happened in all of so many of our theological texts where sexual violence is condoned in so many ways and issues um, that that where this the, these these um, atrocities happen, and so it's easy, right, to think, oh, I'm just going to call the police and it's going to go away. Like it's easy, like I'm just going to lock him up and or her up or them up, and I'm just and I'm going to be safe. That that I think that that this it, it, this other work requires a lot of work. I think about my teacher, Tony K. Bambara and her novel, The Salt Eaters, when she says, are you sure you want to be well? Now, this is to a, a particular, um, um, uh, <clears throat> a particular uh, protagonist. But I think about that as a question for society, you know, like, you know, what what is it going to take for our communities to be well? I think about indigenous wisdom and indigenous wisdom is all over the world, but I want to talk about in terms of here and thinking about the Iroquois nation, Iroquois nation in terms of, you know, every decision that they made was thinking about seven generations ahead. And what is the work that maybe we can do, right? That first and foremost centers the immediate survivor. We want to make sure that they are safe, but also thinking about the harm doer, right? What what has happened in their lives? Not should be this should not be the responsibility of the survivor, especially children, um, to figure that out. But hopefully, there are people who want to do that work, because prisons aren't stopping rape. If I mean, we have the highest, you know, per capita rate of of, of incarcerated people in the world, <laughs> one of the highest. And rape and sexual assault is as rampant as ever. So clearly, there ha we have to think about other ways um, that aren't reliant on really in invoking more violence in the name of stopping violence. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Aisha Shahida Simmons, the editor of a book called Love with Accountability, Digging Up the Roots of Childhood Sexual Abuse. Aisha, when did you start coining the term love with accountability? What did it mean for you? Yes, I, I started coining the term in January of 2015. It, it came up because after Pop Pop became an ancestor in 2011, I did not go to his funeral. Um, I I think I started turning in, like, just looking elsewhere, right? Looking like I was like, okay, Pop Pop committed harm without question, but there's some other folks who were involved in allowing this to happen, and those folks were my parents. And um, I started to demand conversations um, with them. And I want to be clear, and I say this as um, I'm, I am a Buddhist practitioner, and I, and I bring this up because I don't know where I would be first and foremost without therapy, but also without my daily meditation, Vipassana meditation practice. And, and I also want to say, because there's this kind of people have some misconceived notion that, oh, if you're Buddhist, you're not angry or you should be calm, was that I was sitting in the fire. I was enraged. And I actually, my rage, I would say, might have been bigger, greater, and 
more focused towards my parents than even pop up. And that was precisely because they, because of who they are in the world and the work that they've done for over six decades um, of their lives um, around injustices. And not just like, not, I don't wanna say just like it, but be, in addition to racial justice work, racial justice for them also included gender violence, violence against LGBTQ communities in terms of the work that my father did in, in Eastern Europe and, and, and against Roma Sinti communities and in, in support of Palestinians. I mean, my mother lived in, in Jordan for many years. So I share all of that to say that I was just like, whoa, wait a minute. You all have not, a grave injustice has happened here in this family and y'all haven't done anything about it. And initially they really buried their heads in the sand and um, and I was stunned, Kat, I was really stunned. Now I'm not a parent and that's probably very intentional. I mean, in terms of, and this is hindsight at 54 thinking about this, um, but I, so I can't even imagine the amount of any form of grief or shame or about not protecting one's child that they must have been holding. Um, and then combined with being the human rights activist that they are in the world. And so it was literally doing a, a meditation session in my apartment um, and, um, where I was just, I really felt like, like there were like flames around me. It was my own internal flames because I just was like, I can't believe they're not dealing with this. I can't believe they're not addressing it. And during that practice of sitting in the fire, sitting in my rage, um, the, the words love with and with is always capitalized, accountability emerged. And for me, what it meant was that I love them and I deeply respect them. And that love would not shield them from me holding them accountable. And so what started happening was every single communique, every text, every email, every conversation that I was having in that period was love with accountability. So that's how it um, that's how it really uh, started. And, and so it's really one of those kind of um, embodied practice that informed theory. It wasn't theory informing embodied practice um, and that that began um, the journey and it was a long journey. It didn't happen overnight in terms of them really facing what they did not do. Um, and, um, um, and so that, that, was, that was the work and, and, it's, and it's still the work. I mean, that started that in 2015. I mean, we've done a lot of work um, uh, together. My mother has, is one of the contributors to the anthology and has uh, written about her and my dad's um, bystanding roles and how she didn't protect me. Um, and and then during the pandemic shutdown, we actually had a few, the three of us in our respective spaces, Zoom conversations and really talking about the work. Um, and it's really, you know, for anyone who sees my film, Know the Rape Documentary, my parents are very prominent in the film as the incredible human rights workers um, and advocates. Um, and my mother talks, is a survivor and talks about the, not only the harm that she experienced, the sexual violence that she experienced, um, 
and but how she instituted a sexual harassment policy in Laurel, Mississippi in 1964 during the Mississippi Freedom Summer. So that's and I and I, I highlight this in for two reasons. One, to talk about these complexities. Here, my mother is a survivor and yet didn't protect her daughter. So that's that's one component. The other component that when I was making no, that I lifted them up and I and and did not talk about and know the complications and contradictions of them not protecting me. I mean, I barely touched childhood sexual abuse and know the rape documentary. So it made perfect sense while I had to kind of go do a deep dive with this anthology, not only in terms of my own experiences, but then inviting the voices of 40 diasporic, black, queer, trans, cis, um, straight um, survivors and advocates who not only share their experiences of the trauma um, that they endured, but also envision what can love with accountability look like in response to childhood sexual abuse. And I should talk a little bit about what it can look like, what alternative pathways to becoming whole, to having accountability um, can be present for survivors, for our families, that, that then, you know, the ripple effects of that healing go into our communities. Yeah, I think that the really important thing is for even like, so I need to say in 2015, when I was doing the, when I came, when Love with Accountability entered into my life through my meditative practice, I was 2015, I was 46 years old. So, and I shared that because when we talk about childhood sexual abuse, of course, we think about what's happening to the children now, and we must think about that. But there are a lot of survivors walking around who have not had any form of accountability or even acknowledgement. And so I think that part of some of those pathways are really the acknowledgement that families need to acknowledge what didn't happen um, and, and not in a way in which um, where there's a but, it's just kind of like even just an apology um, I think about one of the, I mean, many of the, I think about many of the contributors, but one contributors um, uh, essay, Ignacio Hutia Shaiti Rivera, who is a, uh, a non-binary um, advocate, survivor, and founder of the HEAL Project, they write about how, you know, as a parent and a grandparent as who was a survivor that you know they think of themselves as a lifeguard and they use the, the metaphor of swimming in terms of with children that usually when we teach children how to swim we don't teach them how to swim through fear we we teach you know we don't say who oh, don't go in the pool or whatever we we definitely teach the dangers that can happen but we want them to not be afraid to be able to jump in the water and to understand how to move through the water. And Ignacio uses that as an analogy around sexual health. Ignacio talks about how we need comprehensive sex health education from the cradle to the grave. And not this assumption that it's only children that don't know, but so many adults don't. So much fear and shame and ignorance is just around that just leaves children very vulnerable. And those of us who are queer and especially those who are trans and non-binary, some of the studies and statistics show are some of the most vulnerable. And then in terms of those who are, you know, have, uh, 
various forms of disabilities from mental to physical to sight and hearing who are dependent on others to be their caregivers who for in some in the eyes of of many are like oh it's such a shame that they have a deaf child or they have an autistic child so that it becomes the children are viewed as a burden which again makes them more susceptible so it's really kind of reframing of how we look at all of these issues that this is that uh, to address childhood sexual abuse we have to it requires racial justice disability justice gender justice that all of these issues that we think are just kind of out there may have nothing to do with sexual violence have every single thing to do with sexual violence that it's it's an intersecting reality it's all interdependent and that in order to really, that's why the subtitle in the book is, is dig up the roots of child sexual abuse. Because I believe that in order, if we're going to really get to the root of so much of the violence, all of it that's happening, that we have got to dig up those roots and not just keep trimming the trees. We've got to dig up the roots because so much of the violence that we experience, so much of the silence and protection, because the family institution is the first institution that we learn that we have to protect, I think plays a role in how we respond to so many other forms of violence. Can you talk about too how white supremacy and, and cisgendered patriarchal violence contribute to the, the expansiveness of this pandemic of childhood familial sexual assault? Yeah, well, why, yes. <laughs> For in terms of white supremacy, you know, it it's harming all of us. Clearly it has an impact. It's impacting uh, communities of color, black, indigenous, people of color, Asian, Latinx, Arab. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely impacting us. It is also impacting white communities. And I, and I would say this because without even knowing, I know sexual violence is rampant on the, the hardcore conservative right as much as it is on the hardcore radical left. And, and for many reasons, we feel like to talk about these issues takes away um, from the real issue at hand without understanding that we are never, and I'm saying we on the radical left, <laughs> let me be really clear, are never going to be free from these forms of violence if we, if we keep thinking we have to be silent around sexual violence in the name of, because we got to deal with white supremacy, that it, it plays a role. And then when we think about the founding of this entire hemisphere from Alaska all the way down to Chile and Argentina, that when we think about that, that it was founded on rape, rape of children, rape of men, women, non-binary people, theft of land, like so that it is very much a part of the makeup of the foundation of all these nations. That does not mean that sexual violence is not happening all over the world. I'm just talking about in this context. And then when we think about cis heteropatriarchy and how children who don't fit within the, the, the gender binary, children, young people, adults who resist it, who are pushing back, and how rape is continuously used as a weapon, right? To put us all in our place. 
that it is that and and that happens and, and it's really important that we understand and remember that i'm right now in terms of when i look at love with accountability or my film know the rape documentary i'm talking about what's happening intra-communally so that when we think about audrey lord's words the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house we have to ask ourselves why are we using the master's tools when we are trying to enforce heteronormativity when we are trying to um, in, in, enforce silence in response to sexual violence, that we can be abolitionists and anti-sexual violence. That to talk about sexual violence is not perpetuating the prison industrial complex. To, we, we can talk about it and, and look at what are the ways in which we can address this without relying on the very systems that brutalize us without replicating the very systems that brutalize us. But that means we got to think outside the box. We got to use speculative fiction. We have to imagine that which does not exist. And those hopeful words and urge for us to do things differently are the note that we're going to end on. You all have been listening to Londis Order. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning has been Aisha Shahida Simmons, a Black feminist, lesbian survivor, healer, Buddhist practitioner, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation teacher, and award-winning filmmaker and author. Her groundbreaking 2006 released film, No, the Rape Documentary, and her 2020 Lambda Literary Award-winning anthology, Love with Accountability, which we've been talking about today, Love with Accountability, Digging Up the Roots of Child Sexual Abuse, Break Silences, Offer Healing Paths for Trauma, and Provide Distinct Visions for Compassionately Disrupting the Inhumane Epidemic of Childhood and Adult Sexual Violence. Aisha Shahida Simmons, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Kat. It's been an honor. It's been an honor. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask in the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.